when I was preparing for this show, I clicked on a link that Jason, our producer, had sent me to get one of Ofer Mint's research papers. Ofer's our guest today. And this little pop-up appeared on the screen, and it said something about cookies, and then it said, we're collecting your data, and this could be sold to or provided to third-party people. I can't remember exactly how it was phrased. And then, you know, something about marketing purposes and so on. I didn't think a lot about it at the time. I just wanted to access the paper. And so I went, oh, yeah, okay, fine. And then it struck me. Someone is collecting data on me to make some kind of marketing-related decision. And this speaks very nicely to the topic we're going to talk about today. And that is marketing metrics and decision-making in firms and by the individuals who are responsible for those metrics as well as the individuals who are influenced by them. Welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm David Brown. I'm a professor in accounting in the UTS Business School. On on this episode, we are talking marketing metrics with Ofer Mintz. Welcome, Ofer. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Could I start with a basic question? And that is, well, okay, for those of us that are not marketers, this is a whole new world. Why would an organization measure the effectiveness of their marketing activity? I mean, doesn't marketing just work? So we would like to think so, right? So marketing has faced kind of an existential question for for many years, right? So for a lot of years, uh, people came up with very creative ads, creative ideas, and we're hoping it would work. So you can think of this as the madman approach. So there's a famous saying, which is half my marketing, half my advertising works. I just don't know which half. Okay, so this is really well told in the, in the marketing world. And so this has been a major problem. And around the 2000s, people in marketing were realizing this is a huge issue, right? So the average t- tenure of the CMO was a chief marketing officer was the, the fewest of all the different types of C-level executives. Marketing departments, budgets were getting cut, et cetera. So there was a big push for marketers to be more accountable and be able to justify their expenses, to measure what, what did they do well, what did they do wrong. And so one of the main pushes was to was to measure with things like metrics. And so metrics you can think of as, as quantitative use of information. About the same time this was progressing more and more, the digital age came around. So right, you can think about big data, you can think about the amount of information just available. So now all of a sudden marketing has changed from the more creative to now there's a bunch of data available. So now marketers can measure and now be much more accountable. And so it's kind of an interesting mix of, of how like the transition of marketing went from the creative to now very financially justifying itself. Sorry, I'm still reeling a little bit about where you started in relation to this, that all the money that was spent on marketing, there really wasn't a very good handle on the financial viability, whether they got any kind of return? So for many, many years, this was a major issue, right? So, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing to think. Uh, it still happens in smaller smaller functions, but this is where digital marketing has, has soared, right? So why Google has been so successful, and most of Google's money comes from, from search engine marketing, different, for, for example, the, the clicks you do on their paid ads, is, is simply because people who were then able to start justifying. They could see, oh, how many people saw the ad? How many people clicked the ad? How many of those who clicked the ad then went and purchased? So they could then justify these individual parts. So then the metrics that you used to justify, now you can start looking at direct links of ROI. You could look at- You mean return on investment? Return on investment, sorry, yes. You can even look at how many people uh, 
is like a lead generator. If they click on your on your ad, you know they went to your website. And so it kind of changed the ball game. And so you actually see in the marketing field almost a, a differential shift in who who's being employed as well, becoming much more analytical as well. That's interesting. So what you're explaining is that there was a move to try and get a greater sense of accountability with marketing spend and whether it worked or not. But this then was enabled by the development of uh, digital technology, which has meant that you know, we can measure stuff, as you explained. Yes, perfect. And so what's, what's also interesting now is that it's gotten more and more digital. It's actually even gone almost a di- a d- another way. So it's gotten a little more complex even because if you think about it now, there's this omnichannel, meaning that you're looking at things on your phone, you're looking at things on your laptop, for example. You see maybe a TV advertisement, maybe you see an out, out of uh, like a billboard, etc. So now it's even gotten a little more complex, but, but at least a general framework, you can capture these individual parts one at a time and you're just hoping to connect them. So what kinds of measures are typically used when you think about marketing metrics? So in terms of what managers are using for their decisions, so it's a good question and um, something I, I've looked at in several of my different papers. So one, the most recent one that, that's forthcoming into a, into a journal, Journal of International Business Studies, we looked at managers' metric use in 16 different countries. So we looked at, we collected data from about 270 or so decisions in each of these different countries, totaling over 4,000 decisions, okay? And we looked at what metrics are managers using in each of these countries and overall. And the number one metric managers use, and it was about a little over half of their occasions, they're using the metric called satisfaction. So they're looking how satisfied are their customers, okay? And this was interesting because it was a result that was consistent across different countries. So in, I think, 13 of the 16 countries, it was in the top three metrics in terms of what managers are using the most. And it's across all these different types of marketing with decisions. So meaning ranging from price promotions to TV advertisements to distribution, new product development, it was a constant everywhere there. So that was that was a bit of a surprising one that it was so predominant everywhere. I would have thought that uh, ensuring that your customers have some level of satisfaction was really what you should be doing as an organization. I vaguely remember reading a research paper many, many years ago that suggested that customers have to be uh, completely or absolutely fully satisfied in order to engage in repeat purchasing. So the argument was that, you know, basically, you know, customers might be really satisfied, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to come back. So, yeah, so in the idealized world in terms of what you would look at in terms of for customers, right, you have to acquire them, right? So how do you acquire them? You need awareness. They need to know your product, your brand or your product or service exists. So we see that's a very highly used metric. Then you have to satisfy them, right? If they don't enjoy your product, they don't probably enjoy your service, they're not going to come back. And then it's this return, so like retention rates, loyalty, which means how often they come back. And, and you know, and we all know based off different studies that, it's, you get more profits from existing customers than new ones, right? So it's a big deal to, to satisfy these customers who then stay with you and then act as, their own, as your own spokesman saying, oh, you should, come, you should go buy this product, you should use this service, and so that you would think this. But it's interesting that a lot of firms still struggle in, the, in that area. 
Yeah, that is interesting. So customer satisfaction is a really big one uh, and some of those others that you mentioned. What else did you find? I mean, so did you say this was 16 countries? 16 different countries. So That's a massive study. What, what else did they use? Uh, the idea of the study, I have to give credit to one of my co-authors, uh, Jan Benedict Steenkamp. He said, if we're going to do this, we should go really big. Okay, So he, so he decided, we decided we should do 16 countries. It was basically the, BRIC, the, the G7, BRIC, uh, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, MIST, Mexico, Indonesia, South Korea, and Turkey, and Australia as well. Um, so we had those as our 16. And so it was interesting. Um, one thing just overall is that managers on average use about nine metrics for their, deci- for their marketing decisions. Okay. And so that was an interesting one because I don't know if we thought it would be good or bad. So I had a study in the U.S. a couple of years before that, and it was about eight metrics that managers used. And again, we didn't know if that's good or bad, but in reality, what we realized is basically the limits of, of human processing. So there are studies in the 50s from psychology that said the average uh, person basically used seven pieces of information, plus or minus two. So it fits in there. So that was interesting that even though the digital environment provides a lot more information, managers are still restricting it to nine. Um, just kind of some broader stats before I can get into the reasons that, that uh, managers use different amounts of, of metrics is that the country that used the fewest, the three countries that was the fewest, was Japan, France, and the U.S., interestingly. And the, the countries that had the most use of metrics was South Korea, China, and India. And so it was interesting just kind of to see that on, on a broad sense. So our sample was very, I guess I would say, representative in terms of it was a broad base of industries, broad base of types of firms. So this is where the drivers of this information comes out because it's not just the fact that managers are using different metrics across countries, but within countries there's a lot of variation as well. That's interesting. So you said there were nine. You started talking about uh, customer satisfaction. Mm-hmm. What else did they use? What else did they use? So return on investment was it was still heavily used. Uh, so that, that was at least nice to see that they used some kind of financial stat. So that was revenue uh, divided by whatever they spend on marketing. Yeah, so yeah. we just said general. We, we we provided definitions, but we let them kind of just say, did we did they use that or not? Okay. Um, so that was one. The highest used metric of all uh, for a single country, I think, was net profit. In India, I think about 70% of managers said they used it for their new product development decisions. Um, and I don't really have a great reason for that, um, but I just thought that was kind of a fascinating itself. As an accountant, I think that <laughs> that is fascinating as well. Yeah, and so you, you basically you could see these nuances between the different metrics. Um, broadly, the, the kind of just backing up what are these different drivers, um, because we do have a lot of descriptive stats, so um, and it, it's pretty interesting just in itself. But in terms of the broad drivers, so within a country, we said that there's so we basically said there's national culture reasons and there's organizational culture reasons. And on top of that, there's like firm, industry, et cetera. But we focused in this paper more on these, on these two types of culture. And so within these two types, so we'll just talk about organizational culture. Basically, the more interesting result was that you can, you can think of firms that are more mechanistic. So they're basically controlling. They want their managers to use this certain types of metrics. And then there's other firms that are more organic. So they have flexible decision-making. They want their managers to participate in decision-making. But th- there's less rules. And so you would think maybe at the beginning that these mechanistic firms would – managers in those types of firms would use more metrics because they're basically forced in these control system type approaches. But we actually we, – we, we hypothesized and we found the result that these organic firms, the managers in these organic firms use more metrics. And basically the reason is is these metrics empower uh, the managers. So they say, look, we've thought of all these different ideas. Here are the five, six reasons we, we can justify our decision. They're basically empowered. And that was kind of a consistent theme we saw both within the organization and national culture-wise as well. 
That's interesting. So the measures presumably deal with outcomes, and then an organic organisation, there's a lot of discretion in terms of process. So that kind of makes sense. But you found that sat at a firm level as well as when you talk about more national-type culture. So can you give me some examples, some contrasts? Yeah, so one, so one of the national culture ones we, we found is uncertainty avoidance. So when countries are more uncertainty avoidance, basically they, they're, they're avoiding uncertainty when they make decisions, these managers use more metrics. Now, that makes sense because it's, metrics basically help reduce your uncertainty. That's the reason you're using them. It's a, it's a, decision, it's in a, it's a decision aid. It helps you make more informed decision. And so that, that kind of made sense. But then in countries with more power distance, so you can think about higher bureaucracy, you're less likely to, to speak ill versus somebody who's, who's above you, et cetera. We found in those societies that you're actually going to use, the, those managers use less metrics. Can and, you give me examples of countries? Yeah. So in, you can think of uh, Middle Eastern countries, for example. They usually have a higher, a higher power distance. So there's more foreign bureaucracies. There's basically caste levels. Like, so India is another one with caste levels. Um, and so they're, they're less likely to go against the managers who are above them okay, or their superiors. And so what we find is actually in those countries, managers typically use less metrics. It's a driver of, of reduction in metrics. And the reason is, 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 is this empowerment argument, okay? meaning that in those countries where we have this higher power distance, the, it's not, they don't, the managers don't really want to empower their, their managers, their subordinates as much. And so with that, metrics kind of would empower them, so they're kind of, it, it decreases their incentive to use it. That's interesting. So give me a country, an example of a country that's the opposite to that. So it's not in our study, but Israel is uh, less bureaucratic. Well, it's bureaucratic, but people there will tell the prime minister on the street hey, exactly what they think. And so in that country, they, they, we would expect managers to use more metrics because they basically they feel empowered. They're saying, oh, these are the reasons. Another one with the international sample uh, or another national culture driver is assertiveness. So when people are more assertive, uh, you would think maybe at an outset that they would use more metrics because they're saying, oh, this is why I'm making this decision without input from others. But in reality, they're less likely to use metrics is because they use their gut a lot more. They have more confidence. They have that, I wouldn't say rational confidence, but they're less willing to have more participative decision-making. So in the end, they basically say, this is my way, and here's here's the couple reasons, and that's why. And so in the end, they actually use a bit fewer metrics. We're talking about lots and lots of measures being used. I remember I read some time ago a professor at Harvard, Bob Kaplan, said, or he certainly popularized the term, you get what you measure. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that I've thought that's pretty interesting about that is it has the assumption that this is a positive thing. But if you what you measure you get or you get what you measure what if you measure the wrong thing so th- so this is a big challenge so one thing i should say in, in our study before i before i go against it too much is we we do find the more metrics that managers use the better association they have with outcomes so the decision outcomes so their performance of their decisions do better and we found this actually consistently across all 16 countries so we did separate analysis 
That being said, there is this challenge of measuring the wrong thing or using the wrong metrics. So this is a big problem in marketing and in other fields now, especially with all the analytics issues. So uh, just to give you kind of a background, there was a lead article in the Harvard Business Review a month or two ago talked about its metrics undermining your business, and they pointed to some misuse. And so some examples of that would be uh, one metric that's kind of half-picked on a lot is net promoter score. And so if you were to ask me to define that promoter score, okay, in one sentence is how much do your customers promote your, your brand or service? But if I were to tell you how to operationalize this, it's actually not so simple. And so it would require me to bring some charts, some, some PowerPoint slides, some figures. And so what we see is people misuse it quite a lot. And so there was actually, just related to that, there was a Wall Street Journal article a couple of months ago talking about this was the fad, that most metrics should, if you're going to use one metric, you should use net promoter score. This is what people believe for, for many years. And there, there's lots of major big major companies around the world that, that use this as their main score. But a lot of them are misusing it. First of all, they're, they're miscalculating it. Second is they're, mis, they're, they're using it for the wrong reasons. And then third, it has implications also on your customers. So, so for example, in the Harvard Business Review article, they talked about Wells Fargo, which is a, a giant global bank, uh, misusing this and kind of misleading customers because, in essence, the manager's incentives were to improve the net promoter score. Okay? So that happens, though, more or less an ethical issue, right, than, than using the, the metric. But the concern comes back to do you understand what the metric is and are you using it in the, correct, in the correct way? And so one more other challenge is that because of this digital proliferation of data, your manager is now drowning in data. And so just the volume of data that's coming at you, it's hard to know what metric is used, best used for the, the best decision. And with that, since I'm a marketer, I do need to plug a different paper of mine um, that's under review right now, which is we look at which metrics are used, uh, which man- metrics did managers use in their decisions that associate the most with the performance. And, and interesting in that case is going back to the customer. So marketers, we always will tell you, be customer-centric. Okay, Always think of your customers. And the two metrics we found which were the best performing, consistently best performing for managers to use is awareness. So it goes back to the top of the funnel that customers have to know you exist, right? They need, you need to acquire these metrics and then willingness to recommend. And willingness to recommend, you can think as a simplified net promoter score, which is literally how, how willing are your customers to recommend you. And so those are basically the, the beginning and the end of the, of the consumer funnel. And so it's interesting that we found those are the two metrics that were basically the, be, the most associated with, with positive performance. That's interesting. So what about um, given the volume of data that we're now exposed to or potentially uh, exposed to, is there any way of sort of starting to automate this so that you reduce the cognitive load on managers? So fascinating que- question because, yeah, this is what's the newest phenomenon. And so this is happening more and more, this automation of decisions. It's happening in digital. It's happening out of digital. It's happening because of the analytic systems are improving. So in essence, you come up with certain certain reasons that you think are that the marketing mix to change. So maybe we'll change the pricing, maybe we'll change the promotion, whatever it may be. And now what happens is with all this data coming at you, you can make all these adjustments automatically. Right. So you can have I've heard multiple analytic company basically have a thousand different variables and say, Oh, we should change the pricing at this point of time, at this time of day, okay, based on this. But as a manager, it's kind of almost sometimes a black box. So this is where this disconnect of this drowning of metrics. Which metrics should I use? Which ones are the most important ones for me to focus on? Uh, how do I then use these metrics then to create these automation? And then the automation hopefully will learn um, and improve itself. But it, it's a major struggle. And so, for example, I went to a, 
the IAB, Interactive Advertising Bureau, they had a measuring con- measurement conference and metrics, in essence, on digital especially. And this was a constant theme that these are getting more complex, more complex. So what do we what do we do as a result? Like, how do we handle this? There's this automation, but then how do you basically assess these automated tools as well? So I guess starting to write the protocols that enable the distillation of the data into decision outcomes becomes an absolutely central component of making sure that the metrics are working for your firm. Because there's no manager to fire then. It's the person (laughs) who writes the code, I suppose. And you have to keep aware of it all the time, right? And so some things that work immediately might not work in a couple months as well. So just to provide you like a political science kind of example, which is is one from a couple of elections ago. So when President Obama was trying to get reelected, they did a lot of different A-B testing in terms of what is the optimal subject line? What is the sender's name? What is the first line? And what, what they Sorry, what's A-B testing? So A-B testing is the practice of basically you're doing an experiment. So for some people, you give one kind yep. of characteristics yep. and the other you do a different test. Okay. So And then you can see which one is working better. Okay, yep. And so this is becoming more and more common because it's, it's it's simpler to do, especially in digital. So anyway, so for the for President Obama's reelection, they tested all these different combinations, and what they found was having Michelle Obama as the sender saying, "I I need your help," is the best subject line. But they found that this only worked for a short t- period of time. And so in the end, what that happened is, in terms of automation, is they realized this had a, a shelf life in essence, and we didn't need to change to something else. And and uh, sorry to go more on the U.S. political side, but Donald Trump actually did this very successfully, too, in his election campaign. He had tournaments between different companies, and they basically competed. And in that case, the ultimate metric for them was fundraising and, and volunteer time. But it, again, they just did competitions and saw how long does the shelf life last, and then where did they go from there. Like a learning system. Yes, exactly. Yeah, interesting. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download the show, head to 2SER.com or your favorite podcast app and look for Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're talking about marketing metrics with Ofer Mintz from the UTS Business School. Ofer, you're just talking about AI and machine learning and metrics. Didn't you just go to the US and this was part of a delegation or something you're involved in? Right, so I had the... the the pleasure. I was I was really lucky and fortunate to have been part of this delegation that included basically business leaders, CEOs. So it was headed by the chairwoman of Tesla, uh, the head of Boeing in Australia Pacific, CEOs from other major uh, Australian companies, and, and it ranged also from education leaders. So for example, there were some principals of high schools and, and companies in between, some small businesses, etc. And we were able to go to San Francisco in the, in the Silicon Valley areas and Seattle to basically learn from the the leading tech firms in the world, which well, was a fantastic experience. So yeah, so first of all, there's a lot of smart people out there. That's so, very true. Um, and that was quite amazing to see in, in person. We were able to do tours and fa- of factories and how things are made, and just just as a, it's fascinating. But really, there's some some tips that you, basically common themes that I noticed across these different tech firms. Okay, give us the tips. We have to know. <laughs> Let's benefit from your experience. Okay, so one of the main things that you see is that when you are when you're a leading company, and this has made me as a marketer very happy, is this customer centricity, meaning you should always think of your customer, always customer, 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 and these are things that were repeated everywhere. And so, 
I signed some NDA, so I can't can't tell exact companies, but like we would walk into corporate headquarters and they would talk about always think of your customer. Okay, there were things like you have to if you're going to have an idea for a product or service, a new one, write a pager about this is what uh, how it'll affect the customers. What problem are you trying to solve the customers, for example? And in essence, for every one of these leading firms, they really thought of the customer. This is the end goal of the customer. This is why they want our product. This is why we're going to work really hard to develop this product. And so that was very fascinating to see because it's things we talk about as marketers, but it's great to see the leading companies do. And you see it so successfully and reinforced and reinforced. So that that was one of them. Um, another one is for these, these companies that do kind of these disruptive products, right? So a lot of the companies we went to, so let's just say like, I went to saw Tesla. We went to saw Impossible Foods, which is creating a plant-based uh, meat product. Um, we went to like the Starbucks, etc. And in essence, the founders and their entire executive team, when they were creating this product, had a vision. And they basically everyone in that company is working towards that uh, that that final goal. Okay, so don't think of the intermediate steps. In essence, think of the final goal: how to solve that customer problem. And let's do everything we can to get there. So don't get boxed into this is the status quo. Instead, instead try to keep, continually push it. And that leads into a, a third one, which is the status quo seemed to be like a dirty word. And all these tech firms, I heard multiple times that if, if, if an employee comes to a manager and the manager says, we don't do that because that's, that's or we don't like your idea because this is not how it's normally done here, there were s- s- literally mechanisms in place to report that manager this is you cannot say that that kind of thing and wow. that was just fascinating like, this is the way we do things around here what you're fired because you said that that's how we do things around here <laughs> well i don't know if they fired them I, mean, I doubt they, they went that that extreme but in essence it pushes each of these firms to think of the most innovative ideas right and so you're now rewarding your your employees for coming up with ideas and on top of the the status quo was they let these these employees fail, right? A big part, if you're trying to create innovation, disruptive products, you're going to have a lot of failures, a lot of failing products, a lot of money that doesn't work. And so not only are these companies encouraging to go against the status quo, right, continue to think it, but they have these, proce- these processes in place that you need to learn from failures. It's okay to fail and we'll learn from it. So to be successful, you need to be a failure. Um, so how, how does a firm deal with this then? Right. So, you know, well, most of these firms we went to, of course, were, were bigger firms, right? So they, they have a little bit more of these resourcing. But the idea behind it is quite fascinating. They were basically empowering their employees. You're working. So this goes, this all kind of links together. You're thinking of the customer. You're focused on your mission, why you think we're changing the world, right? So now you're bought in that way. On top of that, you need to continue to think, how do we improve this process? And hey, you'll have missteps along the way. So we're going to empower you. Even if you fail, you had this great idea. That's okay. We'll all learn from it. Maybe something better will come out. And so, in a pure like decision making, you know, abstract way, this is. I, w- I was very impressed because this is what I. If you were to ask me to teach a class on this, this is how I would suggest it. That being said, it was never my money, right? And so it's great to see this thing in abstract where where financial consequences aren't aren't a big deal really being applied into these real world, right? And they, they, what they do is they catch these problems before they, they come out to the public. And presumably they run a portfolio. So you run a whole portfolio of uh, high risk but potentially high return projects and lots of them will fail but enough of them will succeed that in the portfolio you're ahead. Right, and that, that's exactly their idea. Even if it's, it can be a low risk, low reward too, right? It's still, they want improvements. It's not just, a, doesn't, not every idea or suggestion for the innovation needs to be a, 
you know, the best thing in the world, the best thing since sliced bread, right? It, some things just, how can they make their customers' experience better? Okay, so can I just take you back to the customer again? Mm -hmm. And as a customer, I have some discomfort at the idea of being measured constantly. I mean, this to me would seem to be a a real issue. I mean, there's data privacy issues. I read somewhere about some of the predictive measurement that's being done with firms. And one example I read, which is pretty contentious, was about... Uh, pregnancy and the example of picking up data. Do you know about this? So, so I can explain that article a little more because I like to use it in my class. Okay, so, so first, backing it up before I get to that article, in a way, it's scary when you hear how much data co- that companies have on you. Okay, it, it kind of shocks shocks people. And students take my class, for example, I may read a couple articles, and even ones from ten years ago would explain, we know, you know, X, Y, Z about you, and it, it, it takes them aback. That being said, you kind of, as a customer, need to, to realize that most of this, you're just an a- anonymized number. Okay, so you're XXX364 or whatever. Um, so so that's one thing. And there's there's more regulations coming away, but it's very much a challenge. And, and just hearing the different techniques, like the the different ones, like in Europe, which they, they enacted the GDRP. For example, that was an idea. That's why you have to click, is it okay to collect cookies? Uh, but... But it, it, that, that's kind of a challenge in this way. All right, but back to the, the example of the pregnancy. So the Target stores, in the, this was in the U.S., not the Australian version, a couple of years ago found out they were thinking, okay, when do customers make life-changing decisions? So most times as a customer, we basically purchase the same things we bought. So you buy the same things a lot of times for like 10 years in a row, same types of laundry detergent, such soaps, all these different things. And what they realize is one crucial time is when you have your first kid, when a couple has this first kid. Okay, so now they started thinking, how do we find out when a couple's going to have that first kid? Well, we can't, and when is the timing? So you can't, as Target, couldn't wait till after the baby was born because if you think about when, when you as a couple have start buying stuff, it's, it's the second trimester. So what they started doing is analyzing in the data what are, what are indicators of, of when people are when women is, when women are pregnant, okay. So they started thinking. They did a bunch of uh, of analysis, and they th- found things like non unscented lotions, right, or vitamins that women would take. Um, I joke with my wife pickles, but th- th- they didn't really do that. Um, but different different items like that, right? And so they were able to to basically find out who was pregnant, who's not. Okay. So then what they did this was this was a handful of years ago is they would send by via mail basically a bunch of different promotions. And what they realized then is they put too much about pregnancy, in essence. So the brochure was very much about pregnancy. So they, as, as a customer, women would open this and see all this pregnancy stuff, and it rightfully freaked them out. Okay, And so part of this was a story where a, a, a gentleman came into a store and started yelling at the manager because his 16-year-old daughter got this promotion. He goes, how dare Target well, target my my sixteen year old daughter about pregnancy. A month later, he had to go apologize because she she admitted she was pregnant. Okay. Wow, that is a little confronting. Okay. So then, what Target realizes 
even though we know that the person, the woman is pregnant, we can't make it this blatant. So what they ended up doing is in these pamphlets and the, in these books of coupons is they started just putting in other random ads. So yes, there was a little more than normal of pregnancy ad, of ads towards pregnancy products, sorry, products that people need when they're pregnant, but they couldn't make it too much. So it's like, we know you're pregnant, but we can't know that you, we can't say that we know this. So, so it was interesting and they, they had a great results out of that. And okay, so now bringing that to, to now, especially things on digital, people are tracking you. In, so you see that you may have gone to see, for example, the, let's just say the Maritime Museum. Okay, this actually happened to me an hour ago. So I was considering a Maritime Museum. I then went on Facebook for a different reason. Guess what I see? I see an ad for a Maritime Museum. And so this is where this privacy issues are coming up. And so this, that type of advertisement is called retargeting or remarketing. And basically they see that you come to their website and you may, may you usually do not purchase. So then they kind of put you in different situations. And I think this is kind of, well, it's a great marketing strategy, right? It's kind of exacerbated the situation where customers are realizing, oh, these companies know a little too much. And so we're seeing more and more kind of, uh, I wouldn't say revolting, but anger towards it. Yeah, that's a real challenge, isn't it? So on one level, the use of metrics is really good for firms being able to uh, satisfy their customers, you know, get their customers' needs right at the center of what they're doing, which presumably is a good thing. But the other side of it, it can be quite invasive and it can disaffect customers. That's, yeah, that's a perfect summary. And the trade-off here is that the more co- companies usually know about you, the more they can tailor their recommendations, your, their their products towards your wants and needs. So it's it's a better alignment of what you're interested in, right? So instead of you searching the web and getting an ad, for example, of a senior citizen who needs some some product that you're, you're not in that, right? These companies are are now more targeting you based on what you want. So that's the good of it, right? And it's more successful for businesses. It's better for customers. On the other hand, there is that creep factor, right? And so this is the challenge going on in the industry and. It, there's not an easy solution, right? So this is, 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 is pretty fascinating. Maybe there's another research paper in that for you, mate. So it's a good idea, yeah. <laughs> Ofer, thanks so much for coming on the show, explaining your research, and particularly the prevalence of marketing metrics. I hadn't quite appreciated how prevalent they were until our discussion. It brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business Futures is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is made by UTS Business School with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com slash thinkbusinessfutures. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. Our executive producer is Jason Lequier. Till next time.